On this show, they cover the biggest news stories, give their fact-based opinions, and interview many great people from all over the fruited plains. These stories and experiences are what make up the fabric of this great country. This isn't just any show. This is the Matt and Chan Show. Now, live from Fresno, California, here are your hosts, Matt and Chan. All right, guys, welcome back to the Matt and Chan Show. We got Michael Johns on today. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you guys. Pleasure to be with you as well. So, Michael, you've accomplished a lot. Um, with the Heritage Foundation, being a speechwriter for George H.W. Bush, and the co-founder and national leader of the Tea Party movement. Um, what initially sparked your interest in politics? My, my interest in politics goes back almost to my late teens. Um, I started to read and uh, become interested in politics almost in high school. Um, though I hadn't really developed a real like formidable ideology or party affiliation, but I attended the university. I grew up in the Lehigh Valley region of Pennsylvania, which in the 80s, which went through an extraordinary decimation of uh, manufacturing jobs, including the second largest uh, steel manufacturer in the country, Upland Steel. What's the impact that had on a lot of Americans? And I asked myself, just watching it, why more wasn't being done to address the problem. I didn't answer that question, but I started to at least think about it. I attended the University of Miami in uh, Florida, a different environment, but I encountered another issue down there that led me to the same question, and that was uh, many of my Cuban-American friends there spoke in um, really glaring, uh, horrible terms about the persecution of their families under uh, Fidel Castro's communist Cuba. And from that, I kind of concluded that government's ability to do harm to people, particularly in totalitarian ideologies, particularly through communism, was, was extraordinary. Um, and, that, um, and that I was an anti-communist. And from there, I kind of concluded that I was uh, a Republican. I concluded that I was supportive of Ronald Reagan and his foreign policy and domestic policy agenda, and, and I grew throughout that. Um, completed two internships in college, one with the National Journalism Center, which I always try to plug. It's an extraordinary opportunity for young um, individuals who want to develop journalistic skills but have problems with the obvious far-left bias that exists in our media. They do a good job. A lot of the icons have gone through that, now from Gladwell, or and Coulter, uh, um, you know, what's going on, John Barnes, um, myself, often, you know, a good number of, good number of, uh, of individuals you would recognize in the world of conservative uh, authors and conservative journalists. That's good to hear, too, because a lot of, like you said, the bias in journalism now, if you even want to call the mainstream media journalism anymore, I think those are great opportunities for the people listening. A lot of students listen to this show, so it's uh, that's a good plug to the National Journal Journalism Institute. But yeah, feel free to continue. Yeah, well, I've, I've recommended it to a good number of um, young uh, conservatives and young journalists, and I think almost everyone has had a fruitful experience in going through it, uh, in part because 
yes, it's a summer internship or it's an internship during one of the semesters in college, but then sort of you create an alumni and a, a sort of community of individuals who ostensibly are there to provide guidance and support for you for individuals throughout the rest of their career. And uh, this was founded by a, a conservative author and columnist named M. Stanton Evans, who passed away a few years ago, but uh, he um, had a kind of formidable impact on me early on, and I was tight with him. Um, he's written some great books worth reading. He was committed to the conservative youth of this country. Um, National Journalism Center is, was more recently acquired by Young America's Foundation, so it's run out of that organization, and which is a large grouping of um, opportunities available to conservative students, and uh, is doing some intriguing work sponsoring conservative speakers on campuses, and um, also has Young Americans for Freedom, which was founded by Bill Buckley in the 1950s, I believe. Um, I went on, I did an internship with Congressman Don Ritter, uh, who represented my district of Pennsylvania, um, was active president of college Republicans, you know, and then sort of entered the entire profession after college with the Heritage Foundation, one of the centerpieces of global conservatism, probably the centerpiece in my judgment mm -hmm. of American conservatives. I was an editor of Policy Review Magazine, I worked with the National Sousa, we were both co-editors there. And Tucker Carlson came in later. Incredible. Uh, so it was kind of a, a great team of people who've gone on to do some exceptional things. And um, and then I was promoted to foreign policy analyst, and I was incredibly involved in advocating, supporting, even visiting with um, rebel movements around the world that were opposing communist regimes. So I was out with Contras in Nicaragua. I was out with the Siena. Uh, Forces, the ANS forces in Cambodia, and um, was very tightly linked to uh, the anti-communist resistance in Angola and getting the Soviets and Cubans out of Africa. Uh, which you know, so this is the end of the Cold War, and many historians, including non-conservative, including liberal historians, have written of the fact that the Reagan doctrine, which um, pretty universally successful in putting a lot of cost and pressure on the Soviet Union's expansionism, ultimately had such an impact within the Kremlin that it sparked the debate of literally what were they doing. I mean, they had an incredibly costly experience in Afghanistan because Reagan supported the Mujahideen and, um, and, and made the uh, occupation of Afghanistan untenable. And, um, and and these resistance movements succeeded or forced elections or forced troop withdrawals in other areas. And it, it's underestimated, frankly, the Reagan doctrine as the, as the reason um, the Cold War ended. It is, in my view, one of the top reasons. Uh, it was also abundantly clear that they could not fight and win a nuclear war, nor were they uh, in a position militarily to invade Western Europe or achieve their ends militarily there. But I think that fact was self-evident for decades. Um, that, you know, that was true also under the Carter administration. What wasn't true in the Carter administration was that these pe that people were rising up around the world to oppose communism in all kinds of ways. In some cases militarily, in other cases that wasn't an option, but they were doing it politically and underground. 
And uh, there's one thing, one common denominator of communist regimes is they, they always, one, one production they always have are uh, people opposing it and people looking to flee it. And so uh, that kind of formed my ideology. Things went on from there. I worked with Governor Tom McCain, uh, who's 9-11 Commission Chairman, um, and helped facilitate some of his involvement into national security and foreign policy, which he hadn't really up to that point done. He's a very popular governor in New Jersey, tough state to win for a Republican, which showed kind of how it could be done. And uh, I was very involved in education policy, involved in Jack Kemp's Low-Income Housing Commission when I worked with him, was involved with the um, Steve Forbes and the, the Post-Castro Commission um, on Cuba, and uh, National Endowment for Democracy, a bunch of, a bunch of areas. Um, and also on the Bush Quail 92 um, campaign in New Jersey. I wrote an op-ed for the governor that appeared in the New York Times op-ed page on why Bush deserved another four years in my judgment versus Clinton, his experience like Obama's in 2008 was pretty ill-defined and unremarkable. Uh, that sort of captured the attention of the White House and that led me into being a speechwriter for President Bush 41. Um, went on and worked with a place called the International Republican Institute, which is uh, supported by the State Department and U.S. Agency for International Development. It's very involved in supporting the nascent new democracies after the Cold War around the world. I developed programs all over the world, in Asia and the Middle East, Latin America, uh, former Soviet Union, uh, Central Europe, <clears throat> to support uh, democracy institutions. Um, worked in the Senate with a quintessential rhino Republican uh, Olympia Snow. Saw the limitations, I think, and learned some lessons there about what could and couldn't be done through bipartisanship. Bipartisanship was still alive then, but it was breathing its final breaths. Yeah. And uh, in 2009, I, I had two decades, had a over two decade career in healthcare management. Uh, policy issues were at the centerpiece of every one of those affiliations. Um, didn't think so going in, but it turned out to be that case. And rules are always changing, reimbursement rates are always changing. That you know, reaffirmed a lot of my views on the need for private sector healthcare, not as the singular option, but as at least an option available to the American people. And then in 2009, um, was one of a handful of uh, people, the loose network that we had developed to um, witness the famous um, Rick Santelli rant in Chicago and uh, participated in the first founding calls what became the Tea Party movement. We didn't really envision it would be a movement at first. We wanted to launch one day of national protests against high taxes, expansive government, and support of the Constitution. And it took off so much that it really transformed the entire political dynamic of the country. Um, we succeeded in blocking Obama's agenda completely in 2010, two years into his eight-year uh, term with the uh, largest um, Republican victory in over 70 years with substantial numbers of Tea Party Republicans that drove the agenda and came back and won the Senate in 2014, blocked a lot of the radical judge judicial appointments that Obama was inclined to make. And then, in my judgment, the most underestimated component of it was the, the impact the Tea Party movement had on Donald Trump's candidacy. And never, hey, Donald Trump and Donald Trump alone deserves credit for 
that campaign and for his victory. But unbeknownst to a lot of people, President Trump spoke and supported the Tea Party movement. Hmm. And he spoke at a Tea Party rally in Boca Raton, Florida, when he was down in Palm Beach uh, in 2011, had an incredibly positive experience. I think it helped mold a lot of his outlook, both on populism, um, in the Republican Party, the sound could work, why it needed to work. And also, I think he saw the rally-based grassroots nature of political tactics as being maybe the, the key to being successful. So I think, it, I, think, I think even he would acknowledge that it had an impact on his um, perspective about how to run, the race, run these races. And then to his great credit, you know, he added in issues that were being ignored then historically by the Republican Party, like um, immigration crises, but legal and illegal, not just illegal immigration, but a very thoughtless, unregulated legal immigration policy. I mean, we're all coming to this country on a guest visa, and nobody ever checks where you are or asks you to leave. We have, you know, as you talked about, the uh, um, a lottery system that literally just sort of picks people out of a hat randomly, and there's no strategy behind it, literally not. Uh, and it's been detrimental. So it, there's no singular story on, on immigration. I think I would be the first to say that immigration served the constructive need in this country when we had labor deficiencies and we had development needs. We brought in people who were committed to the American way of life and committed to um, building this country. And I think you can simultaneously acknowledge that at some point in the decades that followed, we lost any sense of strategy on immigration. And we brought in people who were welfare dependent, who didn't support or assimilate in this country, who supported the very radical ideologies and, and autocratic regimes they fled. It just, you know, it has not been a successful story of the recent decades. And that's not to say that as, as a statement of, of universal uh, truth, because there's obviously exceptions to every rule, but and I'm sure, and I know it for a fact, many prominent exceptions, but that was influential. And then, you know, he kind of added in the trade issue, too, which really conservatives and Republicans have been not really addressing. One thing I can tell you about having been acting in foreign policy now for like over 30 years is uh, the perception on, on China alone uh, in Washington, D.C. has been one that China's growth and development was actually in the U.S. interest, that they would become more respectful of democracy, human rights, fair trade, integration into our way into Western values as they grew. And of course, the exact opposite's been the case. Um, and that gave birth to, to, you know, what was known really as uh, managed decline, a philosophy that um, Steve Bannon, who is great credit, has been talking a lot about, I've been talking a little bit about that's been guiding a lot of American fiscal and foreign policy for a long time. And basically this theory that the days of the United States are over, uh, leadership are over, and that we need to offload our responsibilities to China and other countries. Uh, that's not ever spoken overtly because it would be so alienating of a, of a strategy, but many of the states guided American foreign policy and American domestic policy in a lot of ways on both parties until this present, until Donald Trump. Hey, and we definitely want to hear a bit more from you about President Trump and uh, certainly your time uh, with the, the George Bush White House 
and uh, your time at the Tea Party. But first, I have a bit more of like a philosophical question for you, uh, and and that is, what does America mean to you? Like maybe like the American ideal, or or how do you see America in the world? Uh, yeah, I'm gonna dive into that. Well, I believe in America as the beacon of individual liberty and freedom, where individuals can leverage their skills, develop skills they don't have, and become whoever and whatever they want to be. A country where the government does not impede or dictate um, the limitations of human capability, where the individual is uh, served by government, the individual doesn't serve government, um, and that we build um, a national, uh, a country of national leadership in all aspects um, that is a beacon of hope for the world in a world that honestly is many times inhumane, unfair, and headed in dangerous directions. Uh, that we be the leading exception to that as a place where individuals, individualism still drives. And yet individualism and capitalism uh, are, center, well, are their centerpieces of American uh, experience also permits our country to be very generous in offering a safety net, which I do believe in, and I believe it's important. Um, you know, those on the radical left would have the American voters believe that somehow we don't believe in that. You know, I do believe in um, fulfilling our commitments on Medicare and Social Security. I do believe that individuals who lose their jobs should be provided support. Individuals pay a lot in taxes in this country, too much, frankly. Um, they should, um, you know, get that assistance we provide, that working Americans provide the government. They should be, in turn, provided support by their government when they need that help. And uh, so we do, you know, I do believe that our government is, can become too big. It becomes dangerous when it's too big. Um, I believe it's inclined and has been acting in unconstitutional ways that need to be, needs to be addressed. And I, and I believe we're creating too many disincentives for individuals not to participate in this great American experience that I'm describing and not deriving the benefits from it. And that, in turn, allows individuals who seek to tear it down to have some degree of credibility, um, which they frankly don't deserve to have at all. And so we're in a battle right now, in my judgment, for the very survival of this country, its way of life, and its values, and and, um, and policies that have given birth to the most vibrant, uh, most successful, most uh, largest economy, um, highest standard of living in any country in the history of the world. And I think the follow-up to would that would be is, so we have Donald Trump in this election, like you said, we're in a fight for our country. It's socialism versus capitalism. It's it's uh, freedom versus tyranny this November. And I want to kind of look out a little bit past Donald Trump after this four years. Hopefully he gets elected. I feel like he will get reelected this, this November. But what does the future of the Republican Party look like? And how does it rebrand in its image? Because it's, it's commonly depicted as the party of the elite of the people. And we saw that during... Um, the Bush era, and we saw how people kind of, uh, there's a lot of misconceptions about the Republican Party. What are some of the branding techniques, and what do you think is a future for the Republican Party? Well, I think this 
President Trump has had a very constructive impact in making the Republican Party relevant to a broad number of Americans who hadn't previously identified it. He's made this a larger party, not a smaller party. He's made it a party where working Americans can objectively look at the options available to them and say that this is the party that better represents their values and their agenda um, and their own uh, individual uh, self-interest. So. I believe the future of the party has to be one that serves the middle class of this country in very objective, measurable ways, and where working Americans look at the Republican Party and say, that's my party, period. Um, simultaneously, I think you know we have uh, to continue to focus on expanding representation into underrepresented areas. So this is a great time, really, for us with cities on fire because, well, they won't say it this way, individuals have had it with the um, conditions of these cities run by Democrats for decades. We begin to go in and have conversations in urban environments around the country with people who are open enough to uh, articulate their concerns with the status quo and for us to be able to match their respective needs and concerns with our um, party's ability to address those needs. And we have to do that. And we have to break down identity politics in this country. I think it's already broken down, but it hasn't broken down within the swamp. You know, we still have a major political party, the Democrat Party, that just cannot get away from thinking every single policy in terms of, uh, you know, uh, gender identity, racial identity, uh, religious identity, uh, sexual identity. I mean, it's, it's literally the entire foundation of how this party has been able to divide and conquer, basically, and pursue political power. And um, we can't allow that to be the future of the country. In fact, you know, that very thinking is what does give rise to racial prejudice and gender prejudice and other prejudices in this country. The, the key is, you know, to what I said about individualism, and to have a rule of law that respects individuals, um, that does not hold any biases on that, um, as it relates to any of their affiliations or their demography, and that is, um, and you know, a party that offers opportunity to all Amer all working Americans. And that's really the key, and that keeps the promises that it's made to elderly Americans in Medicare and Social Security. The opportunity may have emerged for us to be able to restructure those programs in ways that are beneficial to the longevity of them and the success of them and the practical implementation of them, but that cannot lead to recipients um, receiving less in the way of benefits than has um, existed. That's the primary means through which these individuals are meeting their health care needs and meeting their um, monthly spending needs. Chandler, you, yeah, you wanted, oh, um, yeah, no, I was, I wanted to talk a little bit about, um, I know you mentioned identity politics there, and we've seen a recent move to implement the 1619 project into curriculums, into schools, we've yeah. seen a push for that in our schools, what do you feel is the best way moving forward, we've seen a lot, even at our university and other universities across this country, about white privilege, um, 
diversity training and a lot of these other things that are implemented into college, do you feel like these are hindering? And we talked and talked about race relations under Barack Obama. He said in a speech that we're 90% of the way we're there, but then we're going to finish at 10%. But we've only thing, seen things get worse. Um, how do you feel like we can move past that um, moving forward? Well, the, 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 the complexity is that the question is more complicated than the straightforward question of how do we resolve any lingering degree of prejudice or existence countries. I think the vast, vast, vast majority of Americans are all idealized persuasion would love to see that happen. Once the decision was made by progressives and to some extent, as I said, by the Democrat Party to begin to manipulate these issues for political purposes and political gain, it's made it immensely more complicated. Um, I think we need to have a lot more degree of commitment to factual reality in this country about the state of things. Uh, one of those facts is that contrary to Marxists that are running the street riots right now, um, law enforcement does not have systemic racial prejudice in the use of lethal force toward African Americans. Numbers just simply do not bear that out. 375 million encounters with law enforcement last year, and uh, less than 10 African Americans unarmed were killed by law enforcement. Um, so it's simply, it doesn't exist. Um, and we need to, unfortunately, we've created a, in this cancel culture also kind of a political paradigm where individuals with sensible, centrist things to say um, aren't being sufficiently heard or you know, listen to. Um, so there's problems on both sides. I mean, and I'm committed to seeing the end of um, prejudice and, and, and any degree of racism in this country. I would say I generally would agree with Obama on that 90% statement. I don't think he contributed to moving down the remaining 10% at all. In fact, in the eyes of most Americans, racial divisions in this country were worse when he left office than when he arrived, so his record on that was a failure, like many of his other records. But as far as a ma matter of fact, it's, you know, if you start with the recognition that things in the past are in the past, and that those things have been resolved through our process, through our, through our constitution, through our, our democratic political system, then you conclude that you know, if you're truly committed to seeing this through to fruition and having a um, future that is rooted in a non-prejudicial um, way, the key is to embrace the system that has afforded these changes, not to reject the system that has no history whatsoever of addressing social um, causes or, or institutional biases. I mean, the very fact that these guys would be out praising communist China or Mao, you know, who right now in Congress China, 3 million Uyghurs are being held in re-education camps simply because of their Muslim identity. And the very people that were, you know, up in arms about Al-Qaeda operatives being held in Gitmo um, have nothing to say about it. Nothing. It is outrageous. There is no better system for the resolution of our issues than the very constitutional democracy that we have. And we have to 
you know, continue to embrace it and protect it. I think that's a that's a great answer, and just uh, and I think, like you said, it's there's no history. We have to be able to learn from our history, and we have to be able to move forward and be able to and bring people together. And I think um, we and let's talk about what the lessons are because I think they're misinterpreted. Um, <laughs> slavery is an institution, which is kind of at the core of a lot of this, um, <laughs> was not an American invention. It existed all over the world at that time. It existed in Africa. It existed in the Middle East. It goes back thousands of years. Um, when you speak out against slavery, you're not speaking out against the American founders. You're speaking out against an, a global institution that was transported here as part of conventional norms of that period of, of history. And um, it's a much more complex matter than it's being presented. It's a much more global problem than it's being presented. And our founders, in their wisdom, provided and were aware in founding this country that the political consensus did not exist right then to abolish it, since it was such a conventional, established norm. But they also put in place the um, constitutional and other other provisions that allowed for future generations to ultimately do exactly that. And of course, we fought from the deadliest war in American history to um, ultimately determine that that would not be a part of our future. And um, that was a decision made by this, by this country, by the union of this country particularly, by Abraham Lincoln, the a Republican and uh, a Republican Party that ultimately, over decades, um, proved to be right at the forefront of um, of activism on civil rights. I mean, this, this, is, this movement has been hijacked by the far left. We did not absolutely very little, you know, at that time through their party, which was affiliated with the KKK, which was uh, you know affiliated with some of the, the lingering support for segregation in the South. Or, or the party um, switch. That's a common have one. We as a party, a lot to be proud of as being, at least between these two parties, the one that was, I think, more uh, had more forethought as it related to how we could not move forward collectively while one race of people was treated separately. And that's still very much a guiding principle. I, I've told people this before, and I assume it just sounds like language if you are on the other side of it, but it really is true. In over 30 years of political activism in American conservatism, uh, in the federal government, in the Republican administration, in the U.S. Senate, legislative, federal legislative body, in the largest think tank, in the conservative movement, in the largest populist grassroots conservative political movement in American history, I never heard, have never heard any racism uh, expressed to me in any conversation, despite abundant opportunities for individuals who ostensibly held these views to have done so. Um, now, that might lead me to conclude wrongly that that issue is not a really serious one confronting the country. I kind of guide my views on trusting the people's view on this. A lot of people are focused on it, and you can't doubt the sincerity of, you can doubt the sincerity of a few elitists or a few swamp figures, but 
you know, clearly the millions of Americans, this really is a lingering issue. And so I take them at the word that it is. And, you know, we just have to commit ourselves to kind of taking that seriously and being at their side and saying, yeah, you know, we will do sensible things to end those issues. But that doesn't mean that we're going to destroy the foundations of this country. That doesn't mean we're going to destroy the futures of people that have no relationship to this problem. Um, it doesn't mean we're not going to defend our borders, you know. It doesn't mean we're going to discriminate against other ethnicities to resolve it. You know, it's it's literally uh, going to be respectful of individual rights and um, making sure that, that is institutionalized in every aspect of our federal, state, and local governments. That's a really healthy, balanced uh, approach to that that I feel like resonates with a lot more Americans and, and hasn't been taken by either the left or the right uh, as a, a collective. So, yeah, I, I think we would be better off for more of that type of perspective on that issue. Well, I think it does represent the viewpoints of most um, Americans. Uh, I, I'll tell you, let's just, just talk exclusively about the views of African Americans. African Americans, you know, polling shows, my anecdotal information shows, firstly, contrary to what Joe Biden said the other week when he described them as having no um, diversity. As he said, unlike African Americans, the Hispanic Americans are, are diverse community. I think most African Americans just scratch their head when they hear that because there's all kinds of um, diversity in the African American um, community. I don't even know if we should be calling these things communities anymore. I'll tell you one thing, you know, I mentioned at the beginning about Cuban Americans. They wouldn't consider themselves necessarily to be part of the Hispanic community. And they cherish their, and actually to a lesser and lesser extent, generations go by, their uh, ethnic relationship with the country of Cuba, period. They don't have, like, there's no loyalty toward Puerto Rico or toward Ecuador, you know, or nor do they feel there's any commonality of of challenges or opportunities or issues confronting them. It's just, it's really become a political construction, not a practical reality. And it's a sensitive topic because we've shut down the opportunities for objective discussion on it. And we have in this country institutions that have, in a lot of ways, just become props of the mob. You know, to me, I mean, I think that points to a leadership problem in the conservative movement. You have to look right now and say, with the left controlling media, controlling even now big business. Uh, look at all the money that's poured into Black Lives Matter. Those companies, by the way, those same, I believe, if you look, there's a Daily Signal article from the Heritage Foundation out last uh, June, about over a dozen publicly traded companies that poured millions of dollars into BLM. Those very companies should be pressured to assume financial responsibility for the damage that was done by the organization that they supported. Um, so they put millions of dollars Amazon put ten million in, Cisco put five million in, um, the list goes on, Gatorade, um, bunch of companies that it's worth looking at that list and go circling back really with two demands, I think, from shareholders and from the American people that we will forgive your naivete in supporting this Marxist violent organization um, that presented itself as having laudable goals. But it didn't turn out the way they presented it. Uh, it, is a, it is a Marxist organization. There's terrorizing the streets. 
and really doing almost nothing to contribute to the objectives that they say they were all about. Um, many African Americans have literally lost their lives in the violent street um, riots by this movement that says Black Lives Matter. So the name is I'll get props, props for whoever came up with that name. I gotta look into that. That person, you know, should be running global marketing for Coca-Cola or something. Yeah. Uh, but it, when you strip away the name and you look at what are they actually doing, it breaks down completely at that point. And uh, the damage is in the tens, almost hundreds of millions of dollars, I believe, at this point. The companies that funded this thing should be held responsible for at least contributing to, to the cleanup and restoration of these cities and communities that have been destroyed by the organization they supported. Yep, and I think a follow-up to that would be so, and you talked about the Tea Party, and you talked how that paved the road for Donald Trump, and a lot of people are looking for leadership in communities. They're looking for law and order in their communities because they've been they've been drastically affected by the BLM movement and, and Antifa and all these other outside groups coming in and terrorizing these these inner cities and and just really destroying everything in their path. So, what do you think is the one message that Donald Trump and other Republicans running in local and state elections should be the message for the the next two months going into the election. Um, what what should be that message that they should? Well, we need we need to create an economic um, environment in particularly these affected areas that incentivizes redevelopment. So I love the idea that he put in place by executive order because Democrats would agree to it. Of suspending the payroll tax through the end of the year. That would be very helpful to employers and employees, both of them share the, the burden of that, that penalty. I love the idea of economic incentive zones um, where you know some of these communities have been destroyed or afforded some degree of, of tax incentive for redevelopment. Like I said, I like the idea of holding individual companies that contributed to this and have the financial means to contribute to resolving it, accountable the damage that, quite honestly, they contributed to making. Um, and I like the idea of conservatives, Republicans, the Tea Party movement engaging in these communities and maybe listening more than we talk to start of asking them, you know, basically, you put these Democrats in now for decades upon decades. I mean, there are cities in this country that have been under Democrat single-party governance for 50 years, over 50 years. It's not going well. The education systems are broken. The crime problems are out of control. There's no incentive for companies to move into those areas. Companies are leaving those areas. There's affordable housing problems. There's issues with um, racial relations. There's issues with um, job, lack of job opportunities. I mean, it's just like literally everything that you could conceivably point to is broken, and we cannot have a great country without having great cities. Yeah. You're describing uh, California right now. Yeah. So, you know, you know, so anyone who looks, you know, and look, like you look at San Francisco and these policies that put in place and not enforcing the rule of law on, you know, on, on clear criminal statutes, um, is it really a criminal statute if you put statutes in place and then some local mayor or um, 
instructs a law enforcement agency to restructure and say, hey, you steal stuff for 100000 bucks, we're not going to really do anything about it. Yep. I mean, that is the definition of autocracy and dictatorship, where the people of the state have voted in a state assembly that put in place the criminal statutes for the state, and you have these radical, predominantly mayors and city councils. They're just kind of taking, it's, it's kind of like the same argument we made about activist judges. Um, who were not interpreting the rule of law, but making law from the bench. It is not the role of a mayor to um, construct state criminal statutes, period. It is not the role of a judge to take into consideration the merits or demerits of a political cause um, in addressing a criminal violation, or a prosecutor for that matter. I'm, I'm, you know, in Philadelphia, in um, in San Francisco, LA, Chicago, we go on and on. There's a whole bunch of thousands and thousands of legitimate felony cases that have been dropped because of predominantly political considerations. The mob has taken control in a way where you have, you know, prosecutors and mayors who have sworn oaths to the people they represent, that they're just systematically violating because they're afraid of you know, political consequences. That's the breakdown of the rule of law. So we got quite a, a, a paradigm there that I think needs to be resolved by conservatives as far as, like, for instance, Portland, okay, Portland, you know, sadly elected this horrible mayor, um, you know, you know Law enforcement officials retiring, resigning, don't want to be a part of it. No enforcement of the rule of law and constraints on the use of federal power that we have to be continually conscious of. So given that situation, what do we do? I mean, it's not like there's no clear-cut handbook on that particular question because I don't really think anyone in their right mind ever envisioned that we'd reach the point in this country where we would have elected mayors of major cities of this country they just sort of choose not to enforce incredible acts of violence. Not minor things. These are major felony level acts of violence. And the more they're neglected, the more we're sending a message to the country, hey, go do it. If you do it in the name of this ideology, there's no ramifications. Now, if you do it and it's not in the name of that ideology, it will be huge ramifications. It's an incredible double standard of justice, and it's completely upending the American rule of law and our um, and our constitution and democratic political system. Sweet. Um, yeah, very so, true. Go for it, Matt. Um, Michael, so I just, I, um, we, we usually do this on the show every week. We do a quick fire, five questions, um, and this can be politics, not politics, just so we can get to know a little bit about you. Um, Chandler, you want to kick us off? Yeah, so first question is, what's your favorite book that you've read? Well, I have a lot of favorite books. Um, I'm going to fall back on the Bible, which is too commonly offered, but offers such sophisticated guidance and forethought as to the issues that man would confront in modern times and continues to be, regardless of your faith, by the way, a book of extraordinary um, wisdom and insight, uh, and I believe an accurate historical account of the founding of the world of this world. And and the presence of uh, God in man uh, through Jesus. And um, 
it's a good time, you know, for many Americans who potentially neglected their faith and too busy about it, had other things on their mind to revisit those core questions, which are really the center questions of our entire existence on this planet. Of, um, the fact that we are made in the image of God and uh, ultimately accountable uh, to God for our lives and, and acts on this planet. Well, great answer. I know that's the thing. I think looking back at the beginning of this, it was it was a lot of time to reflect and exactly like you said, Imago Dei, image of God. Um, next question. So I know you've had a long, uh, a lot of time to do a lot of things in in your experience with politics. What do you do outside of politics? What What's something that you enjoy doing outside of like a hobby? I got tons of hobbies. Uh, no shortage of them. Um, and one of the challenges I'm confronting right now is one of the things I love most is National Football League. I played football growing up, love the sport, know the sport well. Um, I once, in a government relations firm, represented the Philadelphia Eagles, which oh, wow. was one of my favorite teams growing up. Help construct, construct Lincoln Financial Field in Philadelphia. And I really have been saddened and torn by the politicization of the National Football League. I think Oh, I think I share the like. I think there's many, many Americans who, like me, derive a certain degree of necessary distraction from the pressures of daily life through this great sport and have so for decades. And now all of a sudden are torn between their abhorrence with the disrespect being shown um, in so many ways to our country and to the symbolic. Um, um, factors and, and, and symbols um, and I'm torn on what to do about it. I have, you know, up until this year, I said, I said I'm sorry, but I'm not going to let it, you know, Colin Kaepernick's not going to destroy my Same work for this game that I grew up loving, that I played, um, you know, that I've been close to. And then, you know, knowing, like knowing players too, I and mean, just being close to a league and understanding a lot of the intriguing aspects of it. Um, but it's getting harder and harder for me. It really is. I mean, and, and I just, I, you know, I think the NFL is right now under very bad management, um, and uh, I don't know what's going to happen. I, I think um, they're alienating, alienating their audience in a very big, a very big way, and yeah. uh, it's going to prove commercially damaging. Um, and we'll see what happens in season two. I don't know. It just looks like every state's got different policies in place, and you know, even the other sports, Major League Baseball, we're, we're literally in, in playoffs in hockey and basketball. Do you hear anyone talking about that? I mean, like, traditionally, at least people who are interested a little bit would be, uh, you know, talking about it a little bit. It's, like, so confusing, you know. Philadelphia's playing the – I'm kind of a Flyers fan. They're, they're playing the uh, – they're playing – the Canadians, Montreal Canadians, but they're playing in Toronto. It's like none of it makes any sense. You know, it hasn't even been well explained. Watching a major league baseball game is painful to me in this condition without without the uh, the fans. It's like yeah, difficult and lots of other stuff. Big fan of rock music, mm. music generally. What's a favorite Very band? Cool. Favorite band? I'm a, I'm a huge Pearl Jam fan. Okay. Sweet, sweet. No, but, you know, if you want me to go back to the classics, I'm a big Led Zeppelin, The Who, Pink Floyd. 
Sweet. I love it. Oh, yeah. Cool. Zon Han. Boo. I love it. So, this next question, uh, and, and I'm sure you have, like, a, a infinite, uh, infinitely long list of people that you could pull from, but if you had to pick three people who have uh, most shaped your political beliefs, uh, what, what three people would you say? I would say... Um, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, and Ronald Reagan. Wow, that's Ronald Reagan because of, because his ideal because of being exposed, you know, he really brought conservatism to political life. It had it had been a very vibrant intellectual philosophy, political philosophy. You know, really, whose origins go back to Bill Buckley, Buckley in the fifties. Mm-hmm. But it had not. It, it was kind of like the Libertarian Party. You know, it was very vibrant intellectually, but the Libertarian Party is a political force. It's non-existent. That was kind of the case with conservatism until Reagan in the eighties. And Reagan, of course, lost before he won. He had to keep keep at it. And I was at that age where I was just starting to really glue into what I thought was the importance of this and maybe my future contribution to the field. And um, so he was immensely influential to me. And I think um, I think the ideology he brought to our country was what we needed between 1981 and 1989. Just like Trump, I believe, is what we need in the, this eight-year duration. I think it's an interesting match of personalities and policy prescriptions for two very different eras in, in modern American political history. I'd have, I'd have to agree with that because I remember during the 2016 election and we were kind of worried in my household about the p- potential of Hillary Clinton being president. And now we're at another another crossroad where there's a potential we have Joe Biden as our next president. So it's just kind of like you said, we're in a battle for our country right now. So it's uh, I, I love those. Sort of, yeah, we yeah, I, I, I do think we need to be optimistic. I mean, I, I believe the American people are going to awaken to the unremarkable nature of Joe Biden and the fact that. A guy who spent 47 years in American public life and doesn't really have one major accomplishment that he can point to is not going to do anything in his current diminished state in the next four years. Yeah. Uh, and firstly, I hope the American people will be wise enough to think about the first three years of the Trump administration before China unleashed the coronavirus pandemic on us. Yep. Um, he had created 7 million jobs, wages rising. Uh, every metric that you would look at, unemployment were uh, lowest in 50 years, African-American, Hispanic, and Asian-American employment were lowest ever. Yep. Um, you know, it was an incredible... Yep. And, and, I, and, I was, and I was very proud of this, that for those first three years, too, because a lot of uh, Republicans and conservatives doubted that Trump would keep his promises. I endorsed him on day one, and despite opposition on every front, including from his own party in the Congress, he has kept his promises. Yep. Yep. I, I agree with that. It's so many accomplishments and hopefully to keep it going after November. I'd love to see inauguration day in the spring and just see it all happen over again and see people keep winning. Um, cause I'm not tired of winning yet. So, and, um, I'm ready for that great America. No, one more winning to do. One more winning to do. And, yeah. You know, and look, you know, here's the other thing. Um, they're, they're the left and Democrats are going to try to pick the last few months as an absolute train wreck. Firstly, remember this was not Donald Trump's creation. Donald Trump did not release the pandemic. The Communist Party of China did as an act of desperation because they see their aspirations for global leadership slipping. Um, that's a fact. I think everyone has sort of acknowledged it. We need to drive that point home. This president put in place a travel ban that, that, that uh, Biden opposed. 
in January 31. It's a very big question as to how bad this pandemic would be had he been president at the time. It was an act of incredible forethought. I've described it as one of the boldest and most important decisions of an American president in our lifetimes. Yeah. And I put it literally, it's like literally right up there with like, you know, Kennedy's handling of the missile crisis and, uh, you know, Reagan's deployment of MX missiles to Western Europe. And, yeah. Uh, you, know, you, you name it. I mean, this is uh, they won't cover it though. Modern times, though, completely underestimated the significance of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, could you imagine if we had gone through another two or three months, or even now, having individuals from this affected region arriving here? That's what brought it here. That's demonstrably true and demonstrably proven. And it just needs to be driven home. And the street, let's face it, on the street vibes. Like, you know, we've had these far left political action committees supported by billionaires, by the way, um, that have put in place these radical mayors, radical judges in local governance and this and funded this these street riots. But Donald Trump didn't create either of these crises. I contend that he's really the solution to both these crises. Yep, I, I'd have to agree with that. And I'm going to get into the next question. But I know Andrew Cuomo called it the European flu on the DNC night one. He talked about they're talking about they mishandled it from the beginning. So I just think it's outrageous that we're they're still pushing that it's narrative. And, and the fact let me just say this about Cuomo. The fact that he now has a book out on yeah. leadership in the, in the coronavirus age is a sign that you can be a fa the biggest failure in the world. And apparently you're allowed to present yourself as some sort of expert. There's no governor in it. He did a lot of things well, so not, I don't want to be, I don't want to blanket everything, but the decision to mingle coronavirus infected patients in long-term care and subacute rehab facilities was the singular worst decision made by, gov by any elected leadership in this country in this pandemic. If you're looking for the, most, the best decision that was made, it was Trump putting in the, the, the uh, travel ban. You're looking for the worst decision that was made, it was decisions in New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, all by Democrat governors to mingle these patients, knowing that they had a very infectious, um, transmittable, communicable disease. 100%. So I want to kind of take it back, back to the 90s um, and your time with the Bush administration. What was one of your favorite memories from being a speechwriter during that administration? I really believe it has to be, um, you know, my, my views in politics have evolved as the challenges that we've confronted have, have evolved. I've become a much bigger believer in populist political activism. Uh, you know, and I describe myself today as a Trump Republican. Um, um, I saw Bush 41 as continuing the Reagan legacy, and uh, he made some errors of judgment in that four years, one of which was betraying the No New Taxes Pledge, which was, in, by the way, an act of bipartisanship. And for all of you out there that were clamoring for bipartisanship, there was your bipartisanship. Um, you know, he was given promises of spending cuts in, in exchange for violating his No New Taxes Pledge, uh, violated the pledge, the spending cuts never came, he was completely burned on it. That was, a, that was one memory. And the other memory, which I highlighted extensively in media when uh, he passed away, was the incredible um, positional authority he held in multiple jobs through his career, the significant um, accomplishments he had, the singular biggest of which I believe 
is underestimated, and that is the peaceful navigation at the end of the Cold War, because we were dealing with, obviously, in the former Soviet Union, a, a hostile regime with nuclear weapons and, and major military capabilities. And the fact that President Bush, 41, was able to navigate through the peaceful surrender of power by the Public Bureau and the Kremlin is, is unbelievable. Uh, you know, I think Reagan brought the, brought the punch and um, Bush sort of brought the diplomatic um, finesse that was necessary to peacefully navigate that critical moment of history, which could have easily been a very different scenario. Awesome, awesome. All right, Chandler, last question. Sure. Yeah, final question on the quick fire round. This one hopefully will be uh, pretty fun. Uh, what, what's like one or two things off your bucket list? You've accomplished a lot, and you've, you've probably got to meet a lot of really great people and see, see and do a lot of great things, but uh, what's one or two more things that you'd really like to do in life? Well, there's a, a whole bunch of things. I mean, one is I want to make sure that I'm leveraging my skill sets to the benefit of the American people. And, uh, you know, determining hopefully in the right moments and the right ways how to do that um, in the best way. This is a, an art of giving, not of taking. And, um, you know, so I hope I can continue to provide uh, competent, sensible, and successful political leadership in this country, representing what I believe is the most successful set of ideas ever associated with an ideology. Um, and um, and to do that in a way that has a meaningful impact on, on our country and its future. Um, I've been around a lot of the world. I don't know how many countries, a lot of people count those. I haven't counted them. It's dozens. So many, so yeah. <laughs> a, lot of places, like, a lot of places I still like to go. Almost no country that I'm not interested in on some level. So, Is there anyone in particular that you haven't been to that you like? Like if somebody just gave you a check for like twenty thousand dollars and said, "Go visit this country for for a while," where would you go? Um, that's a lot. There's a long list. I mean, uh, I uh, I guess you know Australia. I haven't been to. I'd like to go there. Um, Italy, Brazil. Um, Sweet. Sweet. Yeah. All right. Been been around a lot of Asia. Been around a lot of Africa. Um, there's a good chunk of Latin America, but a good number of countries. Yeah, I, and then the final thing I would cite is, uh, you know, I've been a whole life developing my writing skills, and I've done a lot of writing. I've written to the Wall Street Journal, Christian Science Monitor, National Review, wrote a book at the Heritage Foundation, written a bunch of book chapters, but um, you got to get a lot more discipline in trying to put out and encapsulate some of these ideas and thoughts in ways that are left behind for people. And uh, so that's kind of a final challenge I have. And um, and then, you know, I, I guess the final thing I would say is hopefully a transformation of the conservative movement. I believe we have the right ideas, but the tactics need tweaking. Oh, yeah. We need to be more collaborative, unified, and helpful to each other. And this is quite honestly, not, near, not much of that going on right now in this movement. A bunch of people sort of doing their own thing. and. Um, you wouldn't run a company that way. You wouldn't run a country that way. It's um, it's certainly not the way with the odds we're up against that we should be running a political movement. 
we need a lot more uh, communal collaborative um, effort brought to bear if we're going to be successful. Yep. And I think um, kind of leading into the last question there a little bit about bringing like bringing more collaborativeness to the movement. What do you feel like with I know we're both students, your son just graduated um, and and he's going to be going to Harvard Kennedy Law School, right? Or School of Law? And and so a lot of big things. What do you think? What would, advice would you give to students that are active in the conservative movement? And that can be in anything called Republicans Turning Point, uh, Young Americans for Freedom. What, what advice would you give to students that are in the pretty much the trenches right now in the, in the battle for our country? I think number one would be to not be bashful in reaching out to um, older conservatives and asking for guidance and support. Um, there's definitely a period of age where most, I think adults are inclined to be helpful, I mean, at least through college periods and maybe they even after that. Um, and there, there are resources that are being allocated, you know, so don't, don't fall into the same trap that I just described of uh, feeling that you're all in this by yourself. I mean, there's a lot of very um, influential institutions and people that have a, a very laudable commitment to making sure um, our country and its ideals and values and system of government survives, and that can't be done without the current younger ge generation and future uh, younger generations sensing an obligation to play a part in defending it. Um, don't be don't be violent. Don't be drawn into playing the left's games. Uh, Jefferson said, "Raise the standard to which the wise and honest may repair." I think that's a good a good approach. Um, make sure you're communicating in ways that are realistic and objective. Um, be adherent to truth, not to uh, political expediency, and connect with people on a personal level. And under, try to understand different perspectives and think about them and incorporate them into some of the solutions that you're proposing. If you do all those things, I think that the American people will sense sincerity and they'll reward those individuals with political support. Um, and I believe we're still in that position. I think that that's kind of the debate we're going to have here over the next few months leading up to November 3. Well, I love that answer. And, and Michael, I know you said to reach out and I'm glad I reached out because this was a great conversation. Right. And I know I'll be reaching out because I know there's going to be a lot of policy questions coming up and I'm looking at pursuing potential public policy. I have friends that are potentially going possibly law school. I still have a lot of decisions to make, but I'll make sure if I have any questions if to reach out to you uh, about it, all that. And Yeah. And absolutely. I'm glad to see you. We're getting a good number of new organizations focused around conservative youth. Yep. Um, formulated, I'd encourage people to get involved in these organizations and not just get involved, like, you know, get involved in shaping what they are. You know, if there are deficiencies, look to solve them. Um, and take this seriously because this isn't political rhetoric. There's nothing more serious in this country than we're facing than the fact that um, the future of it is not by any means guaranteed. It's going to have to be defended generation to generation. 
Yep. And the effects of us are not going to make it easy. Yep, and Reagan said it. We're only one generation away from freedom being extinct. So, and I think we got to continue that fight. Not passing the blood. Not yeah, passing it's the not blood. passing the blood. Yep, and I don't want to be telling my grandkids one day that, oh yeah, we used to have freedom in this country. No, I don't want to do that. Um, but yeah, Michael, I appreciate yeah. you coming on. Um, and just appreciate it. And, yep. and I can't wait to have you back on again. Um, that offer's still out there. And and yeah, yeah. you guys keep in touch with me. I appreciate all you're doing. Appreciate. Um, all that your viewers have been doing. Um, you guys keep the faith uh, and uh, keep recognizing the importance of this. Commit yourself to it. And um, I think we do all the things we need to do the way I've kind of described them here. I think we're going to be victorious and uh, have a, an immensely great future for this country. Awesome. So thank you very much. Awesome. Thank you, Michael. We'll talk to you later. All righty. Chandler, hit it, man. All right, uh, everybody, thanks for listening. Uh, be sure to drop a five-star uh, rating on iTunes, leave a review, what you thought. And until next time, this is The Matt Chan Show.